I'd like to begin tonight with a poem by Kabir. Let your struggling go and look around inside. The blue sky opens out farther and farther. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in this world. I hear bells ringing that no one has shaken. Inside love there is more joy than we know of. Rain pours down although the sky is clear of clouds. There are whole rivers of light. The universe is shot through in all its parts by a single sort of love. How lucky we are to be surrounded by all this joy. What is this love which awakens as we sit and walk in silence and solitude? Tonight I want to talk about an aspect of love, the quality of devotion. It has been said often that this journey that we are on is a journey from the head to the heart. Nagarjuna, the great Indian Buddhist philosopher, spoke of the love that slays samsara. The love that slays samsara. Love and devotion are powerful forces in our minds. They have the power to erode or uproot the habits which keep us bound and entangled in our suffering. So, what I want to explore tonight with you is this quality of devotion. And especially here in the West, it's not obvious how this gets included in our practice. The dictionary defines devotion as deep love and commitment, especially over a long period of time. We feel perhaps a heart connection to a teacher that we meet or to a kind of practice that we try or to a teaching we happen to hear or to a place like Spirit Rock. Devotion arises in response to a sense of inspiration or gratitude and becomes the action we take to manifest that inspiration. Our devotion is an action which is sustained over time. We can see that as lay people, there are many things that we have already devoted our lives to. Having a family, making money, growing a business, finding a career, getting, finding love and approval, having a good time having adventures, having experiences of various kinds, travel, or athletics, dieting, (laughs) 
our appearance, fashion, all these things we may have devoted some time to in our lives. But now we are here, perhaps sensing the limitations inherent in those pursuits. A little story. In Rishikesh, India, on the banks of the Ganges River, there is a man known as the Rishikesh Saint. And every morning he goes to a waterfall. And he spends all day meditating by the waterfall. And at the end of the day, he stands and bows to the waterfall and says, Well done. Well done. <laughs> this is his daily practice. This tradition of Buddhism is full of formal devotional practices. And if we have traveled to Asia or if we do go to Asia, it's often the first thing we notice about this Buddhist tradition is the the rituals of devotion, of people going to temples and offering incense and flowers and candles or food to put on the altars to offer it to the Buddha, people saying prayers, chanting the names of Buddha, um, going to ceremonial um, rituals that in the monasteries where you might take the precepts or take the refuge or celebrate the Buddha's birthday. There are all these forms of devotion that are very common in Asia and not so common here. The Dharma has come to the West, but we still haven't found a way, I think, in our individualistic and competitive culture, we still haven't found what forms of devotional practice really work here for us. It doesn't seem quite right to just adopt Asian forms. They're not quite, uh, they don't fit perhaps our culture. So we're in the process, I feel, of discovering devotion. And I know in my own practice it has, it has mostly risen quite spontaneously and Uh, intuitively out of moments of my heart opening and just feeling so inspired and so grateful. And I'm sure that many of you on this long retreat have had those moments of just feeling this amazing quality of devotion and not being sure perhaps what to do with it or how to hold it in your practice. One of the ways in which uh, my devotion arises very naturally for me is when I reflect on or contemplate the teachers, the many wonderful teachers that I have had, that I've had the good fortune to sort of bump into and spend time with, and been so inspired by their generosity, their offering of the Dharma freely, and then I reflect on their teachers. And then I reflect on the teachers of those teachers, and on and on, back and back. And I realize that what I have been offered has come through this amazing lineage of teachings and of teachers and of people, human beings like you and I who have committed their lives and their hearts and their minds to this amazing 
exploration of Dharma, just as we are doing here. And we have no idea when we go out of here how many people's lives we will touch. It gets passed on in this way. To me, this inspires devotion. You all inspire my devotion. I'm just blown away. I, I, I mean, you might think that as teachers we get kind of, you know, ho-hum about this, but we really don't because we are so touched by your growing and your sharing and your moments of awakening and your willingness to be here so fully and so wholeheartedly. Last summer I went to the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco and there's a beautiful exhibit there of Buddha statues from very early, uh, very primitive images to contemporary images from countries spread out over time and geography from Thailand, from India, from Burma, from China, from Tibet, from all these places. And you walk through, I walked through this exhibit and I was just sort of blown away once again by feeling somehow, without intending to, I am sort of mysteriously connected to this amazing lineage of Dharma that has come into my life and into the West. On the altar here, we have these figures. I'm sure you have noticed them. You've perhaps wondered about them. You've perhaps felt inspired by them or admired them. We could say in some sense that they are devotional objects. They embody a certain presence which invokes a feeling of the sacredness of this space. And we might have noticed that the Buddha, he's the guy, And Prajnaparamita is definitely a woman, is she not? (laughs) When we were choosing an image of the sacred feminine, we we went through a bit of a process here at Spirit Rock. And we definitely, the women, definitely, we had one, but she didn't seem to feel quite uh, feminine enough for us. We needed breasts. And so we have Prajnaparamita. (laughs) You can laugh, but it's somehow we wanted the full expression of the feminine on the altar along with the Buddha. So we can see these statues as um, embodiments of certain masculine qualities, of certain feminine qualities. We also can, when we learn, know that Prajnaparamita... That means the perfection of wisdom. Prajna is wisdom, paramita is perfection. She embodies the perfection of the understanding of emptiness. She is sometimes called the mother of all the Buddhas. It's the recognition of how everything appears out of emptiness, even Buddhas. So we can relate to them in many different ways as objects of devotion, as objects of beauty, or as symbols of this amazing truth of form and emptiness. 
that can be a source of inspiration. I want to read a poem written by Rick Fields, uh, who was a Buddhist author and wonderful man, who uh, attended a conference with Thich Nhat Hanh. This was back in the mid-80s. Thich Nhat Hanh had a, a sort of retreat slash conference for uh, artists in the Buddhist world. And Rick, I was there, and many wonderful people were there. Rick Fields wrote a poem, because at that time there was a lot of talk among the women about the, the goddess, and we wanted to include the goddess somehow in our practice of the Dharma. Where was the goddess? We needed a goddess. So Rick wrote a, something he called the very short sutra on the meeting of the Buddha and the goddess. It goes like this. Thus, I have made up. Once Once the Buddha was walking along the forest path in the oak grove at Ojai, walking without arriving anywhere or having any thought of arriving or not arriving, and lotuses shining with the morning dew miraculously appeared under every step soft as silk beneath the toes of the Buddha. When suddenly, out of the turquoise sky, dancing in front of his half-shut inward-looking eyes, (laughs) shimmering like a rainbow, transparent as the dew on a lotus flower, the goddess appeared, quivering, like a hummingbird in the air before him. She, for she surely was a she, as the Buddha could clearly see with his eyes of discriminating awareness, (laughs) was mostly red in color, though when the light shifted she flashed like a rainbow. She was naked except for the usual flower ornaments goddesses wear. Her long blue hair was deep blue, her two eyes fathomless pits of space, and her third eye a bloodshot ring of fire. The Buddha folded his hands together and greeted the goddess thus, O goddess, why are you blocking my path? (laughs) Before I saw you, I was happily going nowhere. Now I'm not sure where to go. (laughs) You can go around me, said the goddess, twirling on her heels like a bird darting away, but just a little way away. Or you can come after me. This is my forest, too. You can't pretend I'm not here. With that, the Buddha sat supple as a snake, solid as a rock, beneath a bow tree that sprang full leave to shade him. Perhaps we should have a chat, he said. (laughs) After years of arduous practice at the time of the morning star, I penetrated reality, and now, not so fast, Buddha. (laughs) I am reality. The earth stood still, the oceans paused, the wind listened, a thousand arhats, bodhisattvas, and dakinis magically appeared to hear what would happen in this conversation. (laughs) I know I take my life in my hands, said the Buddha, but I am known as the fearless one, so here goes. 
and he and the goddess, without further words, exchanged glances, light rays like sunbeams, shot forth so bright that even Sariputra, the all-seeing one, had to turn away. And then they exchanged mind, and there was a great silence as vast as the universe that contains everything. And then they exchanged bodies and clothes, and the Buddha arose as the goddess, and the goddess arose as the Buddha, and so on back and forth for a hundred thousand kalpas. If you meet the Buddha, you meet the goddess. If you meet the goddess, you meet the Buddha. Not only that, this, the Buddha is the goddess. The goddess is the Buddha. And not only that, this, the Buddha is emptiness, the goddess is bliss, and that is what and what not you are. It's true. So here comes the mantra of the goddess and the Buddha, the unsurpassed, non-dual mantra. Just to say this mantra, just to hear this mantra once, just to hear one word of this mantra once makes everything the way it truly is. Okay. (laughs) I bow to Rick Fields for that beautiful... So... Perhaps in the West, our teachings on form and emptiness need to be varied. We need to find our own ways of expressing dharma, our our own ways of expressing our devotion. As I said before, you may have experienced in being here moments of spontaneous devotion arising when your heart is open. They are worth paying attention to. They're not insignificant. In the Tibetan tradition, they say, Garchen Rinpoche writes, the heat of devotion can melt this frozen mind. The heat of devotion can melt this frozen mind so that we may see the face of awareness and realize there is no difference between oneself and Buddha. The single most important source of blessings is devotion. I, I think actually the entire retreat situation is an expression of devotion. And we can look more closely and see what we are devoting ourselves to in this context and what might be the benefits of this devotion. In the practice of Vipassana meditation, I want to talk about three things to which we are devoting ourselves in being here. The first is we are devoting ourselves to a process of learning Secondly, we are devoting ourselves to exploring the present moment as our primary reference point for what is real and true. And thirdly, 
We are devoting ourselves to awakening to wisdom and compassion, which is the essence of Dharma. This being on retreat is an immersion in a process of experiential learning. And it occurs in time. The process of our practice is often called a process of unfolding. What are we unfolding? We are unfolding our own being, allowing it to be known, allowing it to unfold in its own time and own way and subject to its own intelligence. In many ways, this process is similar to a creative process. The poet Rilke writes about the process of making art, and it sounds very similar to the process of practicing meditation. He says, works of art are of an infinite solitude. In the same way, we could say meditation is of an infinite solitude. And no means of approach is as useless as criticism. Only love can touch it and hold it and be fair to it. Being a meditator means not numbering and counting, but ripening like a tree. It comes only to those who are patient, who are there as if eternity lay before them, silent and vast. I learn it every day of my life, learn it with difficulty that I am grateful for. Patience and ripening are everything. And this unfolding happens not only on the cushion. It happens throughout the day, throughout all the various activities of the day. In the silence, in the solitude, in your work meditation, in the need to share the space with others the continued turning of your attention inwards to this unfolding moment to moment. In this simple but not so easy act, we are devotedly offering ourselves to life itself, to the spontaneous flow of truth, which is life as it is, free of our liking and disliking. Or if we're doing meta practice, as many of you are, or some of you are, we are turning our attention over and over again to the phrases of metta, cherishing them, devoting our attention to them, returning to them over and over so that their power gets revealed. When I was 16, my father died unexpectedly, and it was my first experience of death in this world. I was young, so my mind really was shocked that this could happen. I never had known anybody whose father had died. And what I remember struck me the most, somehow, well, it was early spring outside of New York City, and I remember being struck mostly by the fact that the flowers, the forsythia, the lilacs, were in bloom. And I somehow couldn't um, compute that my father could die and the flowers could still keep blooming. It was my first experience about how life continues in the midst of death. 
A story from a uh, Vietnamese nun, Chan Kong, who worked in Vietnam during the war, and she tells about, uh, she, she worked in the villages, helping the villagers uh, during the war, and she talked about one time when there was one village that kept getting bombed over and over and over again. They would rebuild, and then it would be bombed again, and she got very, very discouraged, very frustrated, and she writes about a time when she just didn't know what to do. So she tried to calm down and tried only to dwell in the present moment. And in that moment, I saw a little flower make her way through all the ruin of all the bombing. There was a little flower still blooming in the midst of the ruin, and I was truly moved. I could see, oh, this little flower has done her best. Why not me? And so she began to recover and look around and saw that life is not only cruelty and ignorance, but life also has many heartful, wonderful people who are trying to do their best. You don't need to see 10,000 flowers in order to see that there is beauty in life waving to you, saying hello to you. You only need to see one little flower. We, too, are flowers blooming in the rubble of our own lives. Whatever has happened in our past, here we are, alive, continuing to unfold. Life is expressing itself through us, asking to be known, to be recognized, to be seen. And this life which continues to appear is beyond our personal preferences. This means we can't hold on to it, we can't grasp it, and neither can we stop it from appearing. A little poem. I don't know who wrote it. Hour after hour, month after month, day after day, We try to grasp the ungraspable, pinpoint the unpredictable, but life slips through our fingers like snow. Life cannot belong to us. We belong to life. It's an amazing thing that we discover that this living stream of experience which we open to is completely and utterly ungraspable. We can only offer ourselves to it as it is and let it take us on a journey. This surrender to this process is in the service of releasing all that is held, all of our fixations. Whatever we have fixated on and our experience becomes we could say frozen, solid. And mindfulness is allowing this solidity to melt. It's like the dissolving practice that you've been learning in Qigong. We watch the ice dissolve to water, the water dissolve to mist. Along with this 
process of experience, we can notice that one of the most obvious facts about a retreat of this nature and length is the repetition of certain activities over and over again. Every day, for 28 days, or some of you, 56 days, there are nine periods of sitting, six periods of walking, instructions every morning, qigong every day, your yogi job at the same time every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, going to sleep, taking your shower, getting up in the morning, a repetition of a routine of activities. And perhaps even more significant, you are practicing with the same objects over and over again, the same metaphrases, the same instructions that perhaps you've already heard, you know, like, enough already, I've heard these instructions. When do we get to the new instructions? (laughs) That's what one person asked me after doing some retreats. He said, well, do they give the more advanced instructions (laughs) sometime? You know, when does that happen? In the Qigong, have you noticed? What are the advanced instructions? You might ask your master here to give you the more advanced instructions. This repetition actually serves us. The outer form repeats. You sit, you walk. And this inner practice of revisiting the same objects over and over again with our mindfulness, this is what actually allows us to see ever more deeply the layers of holding. And it provides a safe container for letting go. Suzuki Roshi talks about the spirit of repetition in practice. He said it's like learning to bake a good loaf of bread. You need to experiment and try different methods, try different recipes before you get good at it. He said, actual practice is repeating over and over again until you find out how to become bread. There is no secret in our way. Just to practice meditation and put ourselves into the oven is our way. Trungpa Rinpoche was asked about reincarnation. Somebody said, well, if there is no self, what gets reborn? The answer, he said, is our bad habits. (laughs) We may need to see our bad habits a number of times, a thousand times, before we find another way. A poem by Rumi called A Small Green Island. There is a small green island where one white cow lives alone. It is a meadow of an island. The cow grazes till nightfall, full and fat. But during the night she panics and grows thin as a single hair. What shall I eat tomorrow? There's nothing left. By dawn the grass has grown up again, waist high. The cow starts eating and by dark the meadow is clipped short. She's full of strength and energy, but she panics in the dark as before and grows abnormally thin overnight. 
The cow does this over and over, and this is all she does. She never notices. This meadow has never failed to grow back. Why should I be afraid every night that it won't? So in this form of Vipassana practice, we devote ourselves to a process of learning in a very structured form of repetition. We offer ourselves to a journey of awakening, not knowing what we will discover and what will be taken from us. The second aspect of practice to which we devote ourselves is this returning to the present moment as our primary place of practice, as our primary reference point for learning, for awakening. The Buddha actually talked about one fortunate attachment. He said, let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know it and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. One who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, it is he, the peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. With this loving attention that we keep returning to over and over, one breath, one step, one sensation, one moment of knowing, of clarity, of dullness, of confusion, of anger, of fear, of grief, whatever is happening in the present, with this loving attention, the present moment begins to reveal its secrets. This brings us to a question about time. There are actually two kinds of time that we can notice in our practice. The first is the kind of time that we create with our thoughts. We have thoughts like, oh, I wish this, is o- wish w- I wish this would be over. Or, I wish I had more time here. I wish this would last forever, or I don't have enough time. These are all thoughts which actually create time. And they're usually kind of stressful, bringing us away from our present experience. We have thoughts about, I should, I should really do this thing in the future. And those kinds of thoughts lean us into an imagined future where we have become a better person, a more improved version of ourselves. Or we have thoughts of, I shouldn't have, that hurl us back into a painful past. We could call this time created by the thinking mind as psychological time. It is unrelenting in its pressure to dislodge us from this present moment. Another dimension of time we could call the absolute dimension in which 
there is only this right here, right now. No, no wanting it to be like it was some other time or hoping it will be different in the future, but just a very immediate surrender to what is moment to moment. We become firmly rooted in a timeless present. No past, no future. Layman Pang, the past is already past. Don't try to regain it. The future is not come. Don't think about it beforehand. The present does not stay. Don't try to hold it from moment to moment. With the three times non-existent, mind is the same as Buddha mind. Thich Nhat Hanh, our true home is in the present moment. To live in the present moment is a miracle. The third aspect of practice to which we devote ourselves on a retreat is devotion to the Dharma itself, to the truth. Krishnamurti wrote this. He said, it is the truth which liberates, not our efforts to be free. This has been like a slogan in my mind since the day I heard it taken me through months, years of practice. It is the truth which liberates, not our efforts to be free. We can try and try and try and not get anywhere. The trying itself can prevent what is true from being known. The truth that liberates can be a small truth, being honest with ourselves, being authentically who we are, can be the ultimate truth. Any truth has this power to liberate. So we come and we hear the Dharma, we practice the Dharma, and mostly, most of us feel quite inspired by the Dharma. We begin to awaken and feel this love for the Dharma, devotion naturally arises and it may express itself in many different ways. Spirit Rock, this hall, this situation is uh, an expression really, a manifestation of devotion of many people but probably the most single most person I would like to just remind all of us, is Jack Hornfield. Without his devotion to the Dharma, we would not be here. And I can say that because Jack isn't here tonight. He couldn't be here tonight. So I feel a little more free to say this. But it is true. Tremendous devotion to Dharma manifests. The cooks, the managers, the teachers, all the volunteers who work here, Devotion to Dharma is what motivates all of this. Or we love the Dharma and so we want to study the sutras. We want to go to Asia and practice. We want to ordain. Or we want to bring the Dharma into prisons or into the lives of children and the lives of families. We want to work in hospice. We love the Dharma. We want to go on a three-year retreat. 
I think of devotion really as the legs and feet of Dharma. Devotion is what makes our inspiration manifest over time. And every one of the many wonderful teachers I have had has showed me an unwavering devotion to the truth of Dharma. Probably the most inspired teacher in this respect was a man that some of you here in this hall spent time with. Charta spent time with him. I spent time with him. Master Punjaji, a man who was... His, his picture actually is down in that little hut that you may have visited. He is in that uh, place as one of the uh, ancestors because he, he affected so many of us by his complete dedication to the, and love of truth. He was perhaps the most ecstatic being I've ever met. And he would weep with tears of laughter and joy whenever anyone had any kind of insight or uh, awakening to truth. And he was very devoted to his teacher. And those who were with him were very devoted to him. There was this tremendous, um, beautiful, sacred atmosphere of devotion around him. And I had never experienced that before. And it was a very uh, amazing thing to experience. So... Here we have the opportunity to awaken this devotion in us and and really allow it to manifest. We can ask ourselves the question, what piece of dharma are you particularly drawn to understanding? What do you have a real passion to explore, to know? What would it be like to devote yourself to understanding it? It's one thing to hear the teachings, but in order to realize them, we need to practice. We need to perhaps study, to explore in any way that we can. Realization is to make real. We need to find ways of realizing the truth of what we hear. The Dharma is a teaching of how to be happy the happiness of sense pleasure, the happiness of cultivating happy states of mind, of metta, karuna, mudita, upekka, the happiness of deep states of concentration, and the ultimate happiness of liberating insight, awakening to our true nature. You have been experiencing, tasting, touching, exploring all these kinds of happiness on this retreat. We could say it is a fruit of your devotion to a process of learning, to allowing the present moment to reveal its secrets to you, and to hearing and practicing this precious dharma. I want to close with... um, a reflection on probably the greatest exemplar of devotion that I can think of in our world is the Dalai Lama. He says prayers every day. 
prayers written by Shanti Deva, and I want to sh- to close with uh, the pr- one of the prayers of the Dal- that the Dalai Lama says in his practice every day. As no one desires the slightest suffering, nor ever has enough of happiness, let me make others joyfully happy. May those feeble with cold find warmth, and may those oppressed with heat be cooled by the boundless waters that pour forth from the great clouds of the bodhisattvas. May the rains of lava, blazing stones, and weapons from now on become a rain of flowers. And may all battling with weapons from now on be a playful exchange of flowers. May the naked find clothing, the hungry find food. May the thirsty find water and delicious drinks. May the frightened cease to be afraid and those bound be freed. May the powerless find power, and may people think of benefiting one another. May I be a guard for all those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the way. For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed. May I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. For as long as space endures, and for as long as living beings remain, until then, may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. Thank you for your attention. Maybe we could sit together for a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 17, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.